So this text is obviously about salvation. It talks about the issue of words versus deeds. I think they're both correct. The Barna Group, as of 2020, this last year, every uh, statistic is always a year behind because they've done it the year before. But the Barna Group did a, a survey, and they can be trusted. In 2000, 45% of Americans claimed to be practicing Christians. Think about that. 45% in their survey back in the year of 2000 claimed to be practicing Christians. That's nearly half. Now, in 2020, only 25% of Americans claimed to be practicing Christians. That is a decline in 20 years of 20%. I would even venture to say that the 2020 census is lower than 25%. And the big question is, why is it so low? I think there's several reasons for the decline. One is Christians live in a relational bubble. We surround ourselves with Christians. We go to Christian organizations. We go to Christian groups. We're on uh, social media with Christians only. And so we live in this relational bubble. We come to church. We go home. We come to church. We go home. We have our Bible studies. And so we live basically uh, isolated in a lot of cases. I was listening to John MacArthur last night, and he talked about how the, how the world in which we live in today is much more challenging for Christians because we're getting pushback like he's never seen before in our country. And so it's maybe a knee-jerk reaction to just say, you know what, I'm going to stay with my own group because I'm loved and, loved and accepted. A second thing is sometimes our lifestyles do not reflect Christian values, the things that Christians, Christians call themselves Christians, and yet when they look at their lifestyle, it's anything but uh, Christ. A third reason, I think, <clears throat> ministries are isolated to church members. One of the reasons why I started Trail Life was to get us out so that we could embrace a larger audience. Yes, kids come in. Hopefully they, they will eventually hear the gospel. They will be saved. But most of the time, and a lot of churches, ours is not, uh, we're just in with everybody else. A lot of ministries within the church are geared towards just simply church people. By the way, I'm trying to get Heritage Girls up and running as well. And if you're still interested in that, ladies, please see me. Um, but I think the number one reason is evangelism, pure and simple. But the real issue here that Jesus addresses today is, in one sense, evangelism, but in another sense, salvation. How much does the church understand the central issue of salvation? Do we understand the point of the gospel? Do we understand that it's not just what we say, but it also is reflected in what we do? And so I've said this many times recently, maybe because I'm under conviction about a few things. 
Salvation is not mere words. And I think Jesus talks about that right here. Salvation is not just words. Notice he writes here, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone Jesus puts right up front. Many may say, but only a few are. Uh, with spring comes baseball. Now, I went online to just look to see about tickets to get into what I call the Holy Grail. Atlanta Stadium. They're already basically sold out. They're carrying 33% of capacity and not everybody gets in. So if you know a congressman or something that can get me some tickets, please let me know. <laughs> I'm not getting in. And last year, nobody got in. But this is a very limited scope. I don't know about the Cardinals. I don't know about the Cubs. But I know they're only going to run so many percent. Not everybody's going to get a ticket. And that's Jesus' point here. Not everyone that says to him, Lord, Lord. Not everybody who says, look, I'm a believer. I'm a born-again Christian. I came to know Christ when I was six years old and said the sinner's prayer. And then you look at life and you realize there's no evidence of Christianity in their life. They act as if that never happened, but they claim to be a born-again believer. Kudios is the word here for Lord, Lord, and it means, get this, it means one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind. What makes this particular case of it is the fact that it's only used two other times in Scripture, in the New Testament. Lord, Lord, double designation. Um, it's used in Luke 6, 46 and Matthew 25, 11. But within this framework, there is a note of enthusiasm. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, meaning that somebody will say, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. You are my Lord, but I don't live for you. I don't even know you, basically. I had a man in my first church, and I was learning to preach, and he came forward one Sunday. He was crying. And I prayed with him at the altar, and he popped up from the altar, and he goes, Wow, it's time to get busy. We need to repent. And he went through this litany of things. He said, Now we got to get out there, and we got to start bringing them in. I never saw him again. He never came back. It was like he just got out there, got way too busy for Jesus, and decided not to come back. Yeah, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord. Jesus limits this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was enthusiastic about God to the point of putting Christians in prison and killing them. But then Paul had an encounter on a road to Damascus when he encountered the risen Christ. Listen. You can be enthusiastic about God. Many times in my life, I've seen uh, one time in a dentist office when I was in Bible college, 
a, a woman had a cross around her neck and she said, I just wear it because it's pretty. It has no significant meaning for her life at all. Then you get people where it says, yes, I believe Jesus. Let me remind the church this morning that even the demons believed in Jesus. But it wasn't the right kind of belief. And you know me, I believe once in Christ, always in Christ. But there has to be something that takes place. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Donald Hagner writes this, and the final reckoning, words by themselves will not be sufficient, not even important words like kudios, kudios, Lord, Lord, which means supreme. You can have reverence for God. You can have reverence for Christ and still not know him. You can put pictures of Jesus up on your wall and you can recite a prayer and you may still not know him. You may uh, do wonderful things and, and say, I just love it, but you don't know him. The issue here is, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or not the Sadducees, the scribes and the Pharisees, the zealots, they were on fire for God, but they didn't know Jesus. And so, Jesus says, not everyone, not everyone, this is a limited number. By the way, remind us this morning that the way is broad that leads to destruction. Jesus said earlier, and few find it. You know what? Satan wants us to have religion. He's okay with people putting crosses on their window. He's probably okay with people talking about God. But mention the name of Jesus and the game changes. You bring Christ into the equation and what he did for us on the cross, and it's a game changer. Satan doesn't like that. He'll let people be religious all day. I've got these rosary beads and I'm going to pray them. That doesn't save them. That's, that has nothing to do with salvation. You can pray every night like this when you go to bed, but that doesn't mean that you know Jesus. Not everybody that says, Lord, help me, is saved. Or calling the name Lord, or God, Theos, may not be saved. Now Jesus mentions here the entrance. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A serkomai, it means to move into a space. This word is very peculiar. To enter into a space is a third dimensional space. It's a space that we cannot see with our eyes. And we cannot hear. But with our spirit, we can perceive. It's, it's moving into a location, and Jesus says this is a spiritual location. It has nothing to do with this physical, material world. Our Sunday school has been going through solitude lately. And I've been encouraging them to draw an image of Christ when they are praying so that they can get a visual image of Jesus sitting on the throne, high and exalted. 
It's that kind of space that Jesus is referring to here. It's not a door that you walk through this morning. It is a spiritual door, a spiritual uh, avenue by which you enter into, not based on what you say with your mouth. You can bless God, but be far from him in your heart. There's, there's the issue. The issue is it's a heart, it's a heart issue. This third dimension is called the kingdom, Basileia. And it's a district ruled by a king. Again, this kingdom is hard to define for those who do not believe. But for us who believe, we know what it is. John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is in another place. This is what the Jews didn't understand about Jesus. His kingdom was not of this world, even though he was the king of the world. He is the sovereign ruler, the creator of the world. But yet Jesus' kingdom is not part of this world. There is this dimension within Jesus' talk here of this already not yet theology. In one sense, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. The gift is now present in our lives. The kingdom of God lives within us when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8 says the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in our heart, takes up residency, and then progressively pushes us out into the world to share the gospel. Although the kingdom is now in your heart, it is yet futuristic. Since therefore you have been justified by his blood, much more will you be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is the future tense. When we trust in Jesus Christ with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the payment for our sin and we trust in him, God sends his Holy Spirit into our heart, quickens us and redeems us and saves us until the end. And then that Holy Spirit, that worker within, begins transforming us into the image of Christ. So it's not just a sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer never saved anybody. Jesus Christ saves them when the person kneels before the throne of the cross and, and understands the fact that Jesus died for their sins. He paid for them all in full. And then they lift up and they say, Lord, come into my heart. Be my Lord and my life and my Savior. At that moment, when it really is real in the person's heart, they are saved. Just getting up here on a Sunday morning, having an emotional outpouring, and then going away and never letting it, having it change your life is, is probably not salvation. It's when you get to the lowest point in your life and you realize, I am a sinner, I am in trouble, I need a Savior, and now I'm going to mean business with God and I'm going to say, Lord, I believe you, I trust you, I love you. 
and the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life. So yeah, there's this already not yet thing going on. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in his writings where we already can experience the kingdom of God now, but we have to wait. And by the way, we wait knowing we will not suffer the wrath of God. That is not the case for the lost. That is not the case for those who do not know Christ. Gretanos. Kingdom of heaven, Gretanos. What is heaven like? We simply don't know. We know from scripture some of the things about heaven. But I do know this. That for those who have truly trusted in him, they can complete the death cycle knowing that there's a greater world waiting. Trust me. In 30 years, 31 years now of pastoral ministry, I've stood by the bedside of many who have passed. And there has been joy. And there has been trust. And there has been complete assurance. And many of the ones that in this church that have passed in the 13 years since I've come, uh, beautiful, not beautiful on this side of the fence, but beautiful on their side of the fence because they make the transition into the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you know Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about do you know him. I'm talking about do you know him. It's a big difference. And this is exactly what Jesus is driving at. Salvation is not just words. I can call myself an elephant all day long. I'm an elephant. But I'm not an elephant. I'm a person. Right? I can call myself a duck. But that doesn't make me a duck. I am what I am. I am a human being. And just by saying, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean a person is a Christian. It means that they could possibly move that way. And it means that they're a little bit sensitive to God. But it doesn't ultimately mean that they are saved. So Jesus says now, and this is kind of hard to understand, because in one sense you have to speak to be saved. Right? I mean, you have to express, even in your heart, if you say it inside your head, you're still expressing words. But then Jesus says it's not just words. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So how does he define it? This is how our Lord and Savior defines this. It is by doing his will. Notice, but the one who does, the one who does. Now, did you notice the shift here? Look, listen, listen. Not everyone, but the one who does. Many may say to me, not me, the Lord, many may say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Oh, that's next week. It's, 
expressing, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. But Jesus says, very few, in fact, the one. And that word one is ho, which is a nominative singular, which means one person or one thing. So Jesus goes from this broad umbrella, not everyone, to the one. It's limited. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does. Poyo is the word does. It means to carry out a task. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, Pastor Mike is now teaching a work salvation. Let me clear that up. I am not teaching a work salvation. But I am teaching, as Jesus taught, that what is in your heart will eventually come out. That if you are truly born again, then you become the one who does, the one who performs or carries out a task. James says it this way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what the word says. You can hear the word of God. You can understand the word of God, but then not do it. Believers work on this end, and I get it. Trust me, we all don't do it properly all the time. Let me, let me preface that. So I'm not saying you have to thread a needle and to try to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's, that's not the issue. The issue here is when somebody trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there will be some form of activity in their life. You'll be able to see the difference in their life. Maybe not immediately. I have no problem sharing this. Back when I first got saved, I started going back out partying again. But I knew there wasn't something, there was something wrong about that. There was a conviction And if there is no conviction, has there truly been conversion? If you can receive Jesus Christ and live your life and do what you want to do without any implications or uh, any problems or, or sin, you just, you just, you, it's like, and you just go and you live how you want to live. Has there really been a conversion experience? I don't ultimately know that. But I do know one that does. And he paid for our sins in full. And he knows where we are. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does. Now let me say this. Let me say this. We do not work for our salvation. We work because of our salvation. One thinks that they can enter heaven by doing a bunch of good stuff. That, and you've heard me mention this before, that, that somehow if my good outweighs my bad, I'm going to get in. Well, here's, how do you know what the standard is? What is the standard for good? I mean, God definitely sees standards differently. What if I'm doing something outwardly that looks good, but inwardly is for a selfish motive, motivation or reason? then that becomes bad. Outwardly, it looks okay, but inwardly, it's not. So when people say, uh, 
if I just do more good things than I do bad, I get in, then you're absolutely promoting a work salvation. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, if you truly love me, you will follow me and you will do what I tell you to do. It still comes down, brothers and sisters, it still comes down to a heart issue. It is doing his will and referring there to God's desire. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Mark this. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus refers to God as his Father. The will of my Father. The first time that Jesus does that. The will is thelema, which is purpose, desire, or intent. I made a list of things here that we know absolutely is God's will. We know it's God's will to study the scriptures. We know it's God's will to worship. We know it's God's will to pray. We know it's God's will to love one another. Uh, we know it's God's will to love our enemies. We know it's God's love to evangelize. We know it's God's love to uh, give. We know it's God's uh, desire to serve. All of these things are God's will. You know it. I know it. There's a lot of things. We know it's God's will to tell the truth. We know it's God's will that we work for him each day and give him the glory and the honor and the praise. These are things that we know are God's will. We know it's God's will to be good people, caring people. We know that's all God's will. So part of it is we do know God's will. But the central issue is in the life of a believer is to actually do God's will. It's to see it. By the way, this is very important. This is, our, this is our road map to following Jesus. So when we read in here, uh-oh, that's me. Okay, I saw it, but I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> you look in there, uh-oh, that's me. Sorry, Father. Help me to get better in this area. That's doing the will of God, and it's clear in Scripture. And I guarantee you could go home and you could make a list of things that you know it's God's will. One of the things that we worked on Wednesday night in our, our group was, do you believe it's God's will that people be saved? The answer was unanimously yes. Well, if it's God's will that people get saved, then it must be God's will reciprocally that we share the gospel, right? Because how are they going to believe if they don't hear and not everybody's beating the doors down of the church to get in to listen to preachers preach or teachers teach their Sunday school lessons so we know that that's God's will let me tell you a story of a man who had two sons to the first son there on your left he says go into my fields and work today and that first son said, no, I'm not going. But then later, he repented and went. To the second son, he said, go in my fields to work today. Oh, yes, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. And then later, 
didn't. So let me ask you a question. Which son did the will of the father? It was, Leah even knows that. It's on the left. Sometimes I'm glad I'm preaching just to kids. <laughs> Which we're all kids, right? We're all kids. We're all saved. Children of God. But yeah, the one on the left did the will of God. Or the will of his father. That's the issue. Are you willing to do what God tells you to do in your life? When you hear it, do you respond? Now, let me say this. We do not do it perfectly. None of us do. But some of us got to do something. Because if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, right? I mean, if you never talk about God, you never pray, you never... You never care about people. You never do anything. I'm like James. Can that face save a person? I don't know. I would want to make sure of my salvation. To make sure that I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then to live. If I had... Um, if everybody under my ministry followed up with what they said they were going to do, I would be pastoring a pretty big church right now. And I'm talking going back 31 years. But I'll tell you this, I'm also thankful for this group right here. I am thankful for you. Many of you pray for me, you love me, and I appreciate that. And I know that you're out there doing what Christ has called you to do and you're loving people and you're trying to share the gospel. Craig Bloomberg says this, verse 21, and this is kind of an encapsulates summary. Verse 21 enumerates some of the ways in which individuals can masquerade as Christians. They may verbally affirm Jesus is their master, perhaps even with great joy and enthusiasm, but such claims must issue in lives of obedience. That's true. So let me ask you a question. Those, by the way, those of you that are watching via Facebook and maybe on our church website, has there ever been a time in your life when you encountered the risen Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, has there ever been that moment when you were paralyzed by your own sin and realized that you need forgiveness? And that day you verbally and heart-wise expressed a desire to love Jesus and to invite him into your heart. And then from that day, have you followed him with all of your heart? If you've not done that, please right after this service. I'll see it after Sunday school. Please send me a little text about that decision that you made. Maybe you're here today and you've kind of drifted. You know that you're saved, but you kind of just kind of floated along for a while. 
and now you want to recommit to Christ. I know that that can be the case too. Maybe there's other things you need to pray about in your life and you just need to come forward. That's why we do the offering, the, uh, the end of service where we come forward and, and we have the hymn of invitation. We do that to give you an opportunity to respond to what you heard from God. Not that I'm God, but I speak for God. Sometimes I do it better than others, I will admit. Um, but maybe God spoke to you through this message and you need to make a decision or a response. You come forward this, this morning.